0: Welcome to Decoding the Gurus. It's the podcast. where an anthropologist, Chris Kavanagh, and me, uh, psychologist, Matt Brown. We listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer, and we try to understand what they're talking about. Now, sometimes we have experts on to help us understand other gurus. So Chris, tell us, who do we have today?
1: Yeah, so we have Amanda Montell, an author, linguist, and I think also has a show coming out relatively soon but also a podcast host and offer of word slut a feminist guide to taking back the English language and more recently or not I think coming out this month uh cultish the language of fanaticism and I actually came across Amanda's work through the conspiracyality guys where she did an interview and there was so much interesting stuff there that i thought it would be good to have a discussion and after listening to her podcast i that was confirmed so neither of us have read your book yet amanda which i'm very sorry about um mainly because it's not out yet (laughs) but i still have pieced things together from your content and other interviews and so i i have a bunch of questions but uh thanks for coming on oh
2: thanks so much for having me you know it's so funny writing about cults and speaking in public about cults you'd be amazed how many people then turn around and call you a guru like jokingly <laughs> they'll call you a cult leader and i'll joke about the cult that i'm starting the cult of cult lovers it's just really cult section. Yeah. Uh, the moment and start talking about cults and cultishness.
0: That's been happening to us too. A lot of people have accused us of being gurus and are yeah. demanding that somebody decodes us. It's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: there's, a, there's a an ongoing... I, I feel a bit bad saying that because, you know, it's not people's fault that they make the same joke that other people make repeatedly. But because our podcast was called Decoding the Gurus, we frequently get mentioned, you know, who's going to decode? The decoding uh, gurus podcast. Right, it's, right. Uh, yeah, it, it, like it is funny, but it, I've now heard it so many times. So I'm just well, like uh,
2: yeah. It's interesting because it's sort of like when someone accuses you of being crazy. Like the second someone makes the accusation and you begin defending yourself, you sound crazy. And the second someone accuses you of <laughs> yeah. being a cult leader, you start enumerating the reasons why you're not, and then you automatically sound like a cult leader. But yeah. the, the, the reasoning, I mean, the number one reason why I'm, I'm not, I would love, I actually, I don't have enough energy to start a cult, but. Um, the main the main thing that makes me not a cult leader, and again, I, I'll just start to sound like one the second I start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, is that like I'm very transparently just trying to get people to read my book, and that is where <laughs> my my power starts and finishes. It's like just please consume my book, even if you get it from the library, that's fine, and I I don't care if you listen to me in any other capacity.
1: <laughs> I've had people when they're pointing out that we have a long form podcast and we analyze things and we present our opinions and they sort of say, well, so, so what's the difference from the characters that you're looking at? And I think a a crucial distinction, which is that, I don't regard us as the key chain in preserving civilization or the people with galactic insights that the world needs to know about.
2: Yeah, I don't claim to have any prophetic or even useful existential (laughs) wisdom about anything. I just have the, the social science books that I write, and unfortunately... Now we're in time when you have to promote your ideas on the internet and on social media. And when you start packaging really complex ideas into really small nuggets of Instagram wisdom, I can actually see how someone would start to interpret that as like the nuggets of a guru trying to package their wisdom into like a palatable and kind of scammy quote gram or something like that in hopes that people will want to sign up to learn how to access god or whatever but really i'm just i'm just out here trying to tell people about my book
0: <laughs> <laughs> well actually the fact that it's a slippery slope and shades of gray with this kind of thing is kind of a nice segue into your linguistic uh, analysis which i found really interesting and i guess one of the things that really struck me is that it's really it's a difficult thing isn't it because just by by using language where where we're, we're Invoking these intuitive associations and making distinctions that could be used to divide things or conflate things in a unhelpful way, and I think, yeah, we all we're all sort of trapped in this world of language,
2: right? So, well, where to begin? I, I mean, I studied linguistics in school, um, and even long before that, I've always been interested in the way that a person talks and how that affects the way they move through the world and how they're perceived and how they cultivate a personality or an identity and um, how they access power, most importantly. So my work in general is about the relationship between language and power. Um, And you know, you learn all these things as a linguistic student about the relationship between language and thought, ideas of linguistic determinism versus linguistic relativism, the idea that language um, does not determine your thoughts or how you think. you can, con- but you, but it does influence it. So you can conceive of ideas for which there is no language, but the language that you have access to definitely shapes the way you're going to perceive yourself and the world at large. Um, and also, you know, Language is the it's the material that fabricates our existence, right? Like you you cannot disseminate ideology or or build solidarity or anything like that um, with without language. And so um, in a way, language really does help create the world. It doesn't just simply reflect it. Um, now in in everyday life, as we move through the world, speaking you know we take language totally for granted because it's something that we grow up speaking and we use it very organically. Um, and so we don't always stop to notice the ways that it's actually shaping the way that we might think or perceive the world and um, normally or you know us everyday English speakers we we tend to agree on a, on a set of of linguistic rules that that shape our reality it's actually kind of amazing and something that we take for granted that when someone invokes a familiar word you, you pretty much know what they mean and sometimes things get lost in translation but but oftentimes they don't. More often than not, they don't. But what a, a pernicious guru or cult leader might do is to use language in these really diabolical or un- or underhanded ways um, to twist your perception of reality or to instill a problematic ideology or to divide us into an us and a them in order to for them to gain power. And so in the book, I talk about how gurus from Jim Jones, all the way to Jeff Bezos, and social media gurus use a a systematic number of of language techniques to create a a cultish community. Um, I I tend to hedge that word cult because there is no cut and dry, hard and fast definition for the word. It's really subjective and up to interpretation. um, And there are lots of reasons for that. But I talk about this wide spectrum of cultish groups in the book um, and how cultish language imbues our everyday lives and how basically we're all we're all susceptible to it
0: mm. oh yeah we're very much on board with that when we talk about our gurus we also talk about cultishness and we deliberately use that word because yeah you know there, there are extreme versions of jim jones type cults but there's also more subtle ways of enforcing social control and encouraging that kind of group behavior
1: i i think among Amanda- the on the podcast, you have a quite amusing way of codifying that with the the three categories that you put the cultish things that you look at. The interesting thing for me is that so far, I think there's two episodes out where you've looked at soul cycle groups and The Bachelor, right? And <laughs> the yeah. these these are obviously not topics that traditionally I think people would think of in the realm of uh, like cults or gurus. But there's clear overlaps there. And I think you're addressing topics that the kind of traditional researchers into cults and gurus wouldn't think to look at, which is great. <laughs> yeah. and, and then secondly, that you do have a nuanced perspective of it, of, you know, looking at how it is for, say, normal consumers of The Bachelor versus the people that are on it, versus people that have become highly fixated on it and I appreciated that nuance but also that you're tracing just how widespread these kind of techniques are that they're not just restricted to the classic cult sets
2: yeah so uh I launched this podcast a couple of weeks ago to kind of go hand in hand with the book, but bring a slightly more pop culture oriented, lighthearted perspective. And so the podcast is called Sounds Like a Cult. And it's about the modern day cults that we all follow from Soul Cycle and Peloton to Instagram spiritual gurus to fraternities and sororities, that sort of thing. And my co-host and I have described this cultish spectrum with these three categories. And every week we pick a different Culty group from the zeitgeist and discuss it. Invite on guests. Play little cheeky games to try to figure out whether that group is a live your life, a watch your back, or a get the fuck out. Um, because we're um, we're kind of approaching it from the angle, and I, and I approach cults from this angle in the book as well, but but more formally and through a, a specific language uh, lens. You know, we're trying to communicate the idea that like again, none of us are immune to cultish influence. It imbues mm-hmm. our everyday lives and we as contemporary media consumers and just like people you know moving through our lives we think of cults as the Jonestowns, the Heaven's Gates, the Wacos, the Mansons, but the word cult did not always have this incredibly dark and sinister undertone. It really wasn't until the late 60s and 70s, the Manson family murders and the Jonestown massacre, that cult became this sort of international symbol of fear. Before then, um, cults was this word that was associated maybe with quacks and charlatans, and even before that, it was simply just another churchly classification like sect, and cults were weren't really seen as some kind of priority or any kind of real danger. It wasn't really until those two cult tragedies gained such media attention that we've come to associate cults with something really negative and really exploitative. But even scholars who study cults, many of them that i talked to for my book cannot agree on one singular definition for what a cult is you know you can discuss different criteria okay charismatic leaders um, financial physical emotional exploitation isolation us them attitudes and justify the means philosophy Um, but not all cults exhibit these qualities not all groups that could have or or that have been or could be called cults exhibit these qualities. There are groups throughout history that have been called cults that really are no more dangerous or wacky than the better accepted religious and social groups. So it's totally like a subjective word. And what I aim to do is sort of implicate us all. You know, we like to think, ironically, we do what what people inside these cultish groups do, we divide us into an us and a them. We say, those are those brainwashed, mind controlled, desperate, disturbed, intellectually deficient cult leaders. I'm nothing like them. I would never be susceptible to that type of influence. But my argument is that to some degree, we all are. And the proof is in the way that we use language every day.
0: Mm, that's just excellent. Well said. We sign up to this wholeheartedly, of course. And um, you know, <laughs> they
2: signed up to the cult. <laughs> <history>. <laughs> that's
0: right. There's no escape from those languages there. But um, okay, so one one thing about that that's really valuable is emphasizing that there's a, this spectrum and shades of grey, and it's quite easy for most people to identify someone like Alex Jones as a conspiracy theorist. But um, part of what we try to do as well is say, hey, this conspiratorial ideation can permeate a lot of rhetorical language and it's not always so obvious. So I think that's analogous to what you're doing. And I also very much agree that we have to be careful about creating these labels like guru or cult and then just throwing them around as a, a pejorative when you know of course but everybody's a little bit guru-esque and e- everyone um gets into some cult so sorry i'll turn this comment into a question <laughs> um- no
2: no but i mean it's a good point because it's like what are we talking about specifically? The word cult is it does not provide enough information to know what's really on the table here. And actually, I just had a, a miscommunication today. Like I did another interview and the headline of the interview came out, you know, kind of like provocative and it was posted online. And and um, there was all this hubbub, um, the word cult was in the headline and there was all this hubbub um, surrounding like what I was really talking about. And that's what the word cult Cult causes. It causes such strong emotional reactions because nobody wants to admit that they're a part of a cult because we all are projecting, you know, our own own stuff onto that word but it's like what are we what are we talking about specifically here like are we talking about just a a group that you perceive to be deviant but actually isn't really all that dangerous or are we talking about um a a group of conspiracy theorists that assemble online or are we talking are we talking about a religious group are we talking about a secular group like and what are the dangers involved it's just we need more information than just calling something a cult and yeah tossing around the label willy-nilly is is unproductive and um And really triggering for people. Well, I
0: I think that's connected to one of the other points you make, which is that that buzzwordy rhetorical language sort of infuses our everyday culture and in a very basic sense it's just normal so the great example is the corporate buzzwordy language talking about you know transformation and disruption and leveraging opportunities and so on but as an academic what i am exposed to most is similar kind of language in 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 this field where at at the moment the words resilience and engagement are so hot (laughs) so so hot right now if your research isn't engaged then why the fuck not get your act together
2: (laughs) (laughs) um it's so funny. You'll probably appreciate that. Obviously, I talked to a lot of academics for the book and questions for almost all of them was like, what's what's a group that you're a part of that you notice, where you notice cultishness? Um, or are there any groups that exist in contemporary culture that you think are culty, even if they're not full-blown cults? And they all said academia. <laughs> Because we're just, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all a member of a group that's at least a little bit culty um, and the buzzwords and stuff, the buzzwords... Aren't you know a sign that you're definitely in a in a get the fuck out level cult, let's say, or even a watch your back level cult? It's just a sign that you know you're a part of a group that is is really trying to drum up solidarity and maybe a little bit of elitism and maybe a little bit of those us them attitudes. But it's like how extreme is it? And in certain environments, it's more extreme than others. Like I don't know if you're aware of of WeWork, the startup WeWork, mm. and the documentary that came out about WeWork, but that's the example. That's an example of a company that really put the cult in company culture, and there were just way, there was way too much uh, bullshit corporate speak, and it it really seemed to have kind of a religious undertone. It was there to elicit strong emotional reactions without actually meaning anything that couldn't be said in plain English. And what that does is create a culture of conformity. You're, you know, when someone um, uses a, a glossary of these really charged buzz words they create the sense that they have access to the sort of transcendent wisdom and we all love an exclusive code language we love being able to speak a language that other people can't understand because it makes us feel special and when someone creates that impression that they have access to this exclusive language this exclusive knowledge that's really compelling but it also might be a red flag
1: <laughs> that's that's really interesting amanda and it touches on a point i wanted to raise with you it's so There are circumstances where, you know, having technical terminology can be necessary or beneficial, right? If you want to get into the weeds or you have like a particular expertise, But, but there's always the issue with unnecessary jargon. And most of the things you've talked about, you know, there's a there's a spectrum there. But in the gurus that we look at, we tend to see a tendency for them to reference technical terminology, in a way that feels performative, that they yeah. they're referencing physics or mathematics, and they might even be qualified in those areas. Some of them are. Right. But they're talking about extremely complex maths and physics to a general audience who has no ability to discern the validity of the references or even to get the references. That's and right. the way that Matt and me have considered it is that it creates the aura of authority and that you are a galaxy level genius that is deigning to invite the audience in but is there other aspects to it or is there cases where that might be a legitimate thing where you listen to some scientist and they simply know too much about a topic and don't pitch it to the right level like how do you distinguish between those two
2: yeah that's a great question so i talk a lot in the book about how a lot of um, history's most notorious cult leaders including l ron hubbard the founder of scientology and nexium's keith ranieri will co-opt technical terms from scientific fields from psychology to neuroscience to astrophysics to linguistics and give them sort of these new sort of metaphysical cult specific meanings. Um, And yes, and that's largely to create this impression that not only are you an expert in science, but you're tapped into a wisdom higher than science because you're sort of blending the language of, say, the DSM or some sort of really high-level neuroscience textbook with kind of metaphysical New Age language, talk of vibrations and frequencies, which are already physics, that's already physics language, but talk of, like, the Akashic records and manifestation. Um, When you combine those two, you create this sense that you're not just a scientist, you're not just sort of this woo-woo spiritual leader, you're both. And that is, yeah, that's something that the the average onlooker, the average listener is not going to fact check. But interestingly, like a lot of these cultish leaders from history, like Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate and L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology, they were really just like these sci-fi buffs. They were these space fantasy fiction writers. Who um, who took it way too far? Like they could have just aspired to be the next J.R.R. Tolkien, but instead they were like, no, you know what? I think I'll, I'll I think I'll start a religion surrounding this. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite troubling. But you were saying earlier about like in a lot of Fields, the technical jargon really is necessary to a point, and it totally is. Um, and the difference there is that in a field, oh, any any given field, for, you know, my parents are, are research scientists. My mom's a cancer cell biologist. From her field all the way to uh, my boyfriend's a film composer to to film composing. There, there's going to be a pretty robust glossary of specific terms that other people aren't going to understand. But those terms are there to make communication easier, to make it more succinct and more clear. Once you know what the language. But cultish language does just the opposite. It's there to sort of um, serve as a red herring or to make what you're talking about less clear, more hazy, more nebulous. And when people don't understand exactly what the person they're listening to is talking about, we're highly averse to those levels of internal conflict. We don't like to feel that confused. And so then we feel the need to default to this authority figure to know what we need to do to to make sense of the world and what we need to do to feel safe. So when someone is combining the metaphysical language with the the science language, it creates um, this sense that they're tapped into, an authority much higher than than science.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you're completely right. There's that distinction. You can spot with a bit of practice, the expert who actually makes a complex thing simple versus someone who's obfuscating and bullshitting and making um, oh, yeah. a, a sort of a simple thing that probably appeals to people's original prejudices sound extremely sciencey or or complicated. Yeah.
2: I mean it's the difference between like Stephen Hawking and uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's one of these like dime a dozen quote-unquote doctors, I think his credential is he's a chiropractor, but he's uh, one of these uh, sort of new-agey, holistic gurus who establishes himself as like a science authority. Terms like quantum physics and quantum mechanics and the cosmos, etc., as if he's some sort of Stephen Hawking. But Stephen Hawking is like explaining black holes to an an average person in order to like make real science accessible. And this other quack is just trying to like exploit the fanciness of science to like make a buck
0: <laughs> yeah exactly they sort of they're somewhat similar on the surface but actually they're going in completely opposite directions aren't they um mm-hmm. I, I the other thing i wanted to pick up on is you know you mentioned el ron Hubbard and scientology and along with deepak chopra perhaps these certainly are the og prototypical gurus and i think el ron Hubbard is the best example because he as you said he was he was more science fictiony but it was the 1950s it was a different time wasn't it my or our suspicion is that these days gurus are are more sophisticated themselves and and also preaching to a more sophisticated audience. So they they're probably a lot less obvious in like L. Ryan Hubbard and his 1950s stuff seems quaint to, to to modern sensibilities, but I guess we feel that there is a, a modern crop of people who are purportedly secular public intellectuals, but are actually doing something similar. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, I mean, the trickiness of Scientology is that, first of all, they don't lead with their wackiest ideologies. They sort of pitch it as, you know, this like self-improvement thing. And it's not religious. It is secular. Um, And increasingly, they get you into their levels and they um, they take your money and then sunk cost fallacy kicks in and you're like, I've already been here for 10 years and spent $200,000. Like, sure. I'll sign up for the idea that like the spirits of ancient aliens are clogging my soul or whatever. Um, but, but back then, you know, as recently as 30 years ago, like you couldn't Google Scientology and know that it was bullshit, but actually, so yeah. So I think maybe folks are slightly savvier now because you can Google anything, but also like no one really you're because of confirmation bias people just want to believe what they want to believe (laughs) and so you can fact check something on google but if you are desperate to believe say dr joe dispenza you're gonna believe him no matter what you're gonna find a way um i think that we're in an era of particular cultishness right now um just because there's so much Cultural tumult, at least in the US. And we have lost so much trust of our large institutions that are supposed to support us, like government and healthcare and organized religion. You know, we're really steering away from those things. And so we're turning toward more of these alternatives. Alternative groups, And now with the internet, like there's a cult for everyone and it might be online and you might only be dipping a toe into it or something past it on Instagram. It's not like you're moving to a rural commune necessarily. But yeah, I think like the types of cults that appeal to us probably change over time and change along with the culture. But yeah, you know, definitely in um, like the Heaven's Gate era in the 90s, let's say, I, I don't think Heaven's Gate would go over quite as well now because back then. Well, I don't know. I mean, people I don't know. People are pretty. UFOs are like kind of real though, because I don't know if you've seen any of the news. (laughs) So yeah, but But back then digital technology was kind of new and was providing people with this like sexy new set of answers to humanity's oldest problems about like why we're here and what happens after we die and what's the meaning of life or whatever. And I think, yeah, like L. Ron Hubbard's ideas seemed maybe a little like sexier and edgier back then. And now it's just kind of like, oh, it's just dying a dozen sci-fi stuff. But I don't know. People are going to believe what they want to believe for whatever reason.
0: But you know, you you touch on a couple of really interesting things. One is that these cultish groups do tend to set themselves up against the orthodoxy and institutions and so on. And as you say, we're in an era now where there's a loss of trust in those institutions. Um, So I think that's an important feature. The other thing you touched on is I guess that providing meaning. So for people who are into UFOs, or they could be into alternative health, anti-vax, and promoting whatever their inner energies. It, it's more than just the specific topic of of UFOs, and more than just the specific Definitely. topic of, uh, you know, uh, is this particular vaccine a good idea or a bad idea? It's it's a whole meaning providing system, isn't it?
2: Oh yeah. Oh, sometimes it's not about the beliefs at all because sometimes the beliefs totally change. <laughs> like, um, for example, the People's Temple, Jonestown, that started out as an integrationist church, but then the very name of the group and its ideologies and its ethics and its practices changed as its population changed, um, because Jim Jones wanted to be able to tap into, like, you know, young, uh, you know, sparkly-eyed college graduates. But he also wanted to be able to appeal to, say, um, you know, middle-aged Black women who were active in San Francisco's church scene. So, yeah, that's another reason why a lot of the language of these groups is really vague. It leaves the space for their ideologies to change. But yeah, no, it's it's really more about the the things that really constitute religion. I'm quoting the theologian Tara Isabella Burton here because I like um, the way that she defines religion. Um, Scholars have been arguing for even longer about what defines religion than they have uh, about what defines a cult. But she says that it's easier to define what a religion does than it is to define what a religion is. Mm. And she says what it does is it provides people with ritual meaning, community, and identity. And that sometimes has nothing to do with God. Um, You can have like a quote unquote secular religion But yeah, like conspiracy theories and cults like that overlap. Um, you know the Venn diagram is, is really quite circular because what attracts people to the ideology is in part the beliefs themselves. You know, people want to feel like they have access to unique wisdom, and people want to feel a sense of closure and comfort during crisis-ridden times. And conspiracy theories provide that, but they also provide this sense of community and ritual and identity. It's like you're a part of something greater than yourself, and you, in a lot of a lot of times, you, you'll meet like your closest confidants, um, even, even just online, like in these forums and stuff, you don't even need to meet in real life. Mm. So yeah, you're completely right. It's not just about the beliefs. Sometimes the beliefs themselves are like the least important thing. It's about everything else.
0: I really grokked that when I spent a bit of time in the flat earth, Facebook communities, just, and um, just out, oh out of this sense of fascination. And cause I was just really curious, like wanted to know why. And the, the penny really dropped for me when I realized that the vast majority of members, not all of them, but most of them are young earth creationists. And that the, Mm -hmm. the, the flat earth and the rejection of astrophysics, basically, they were really rejecting this physical world, which didn't put humanity at the center.
2: Yeah, that's a perfect example. And it's the one I had in mind, actually, our forthcoming episode of my podcast sounds like a cult is about the flat earth community.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Nice. Great. There's a, um, Amanda, actually your comment about religious scholars love, the battle over definitions of religion and i i'm active in the like cognitive science of religion field so i have a paper about the definition oh, of really? religion. yeah so it it is i know I'm, I'm actually complaining about the fact that there will never be an answer to that and people should just <laughs> carry on but in in any case the it, following on from what both you and matt highlighted i i think an important point that Emphasize, and that you do a good job of in your material is that while when we look back at the culture, you know, from the fifties or sixties, some of it might seem quaint or to have rather uh, like obvious sci-fi motifs or that kind of thing. But at the same time, like throughout the, throughout history, recent and, and long-term, the people often attracted into Cultish communities run the full gamut of society and include, like in the case in Japan of Om Shinrikyo, most of the adherents were highly educated, well off people. And, and I know that's not an isolated case. So
2: I know it was it was really important for me in the book as soon as I um, well, I'll say this. I went into the book believing what a lot of us believe that the people who join and wind up staying for a long time in these cultish groups are. Uh, you know, naive, that they're desperate, that they've, you know, they've got a screw loose up there. Like, how could you stay a member of Scientology or Heaven's Gate for so long? Um, But what I found consistently talking to so many former followers is that they were really quite bright. I mean, they're, I'd say this in the book, but their, their fatal flaw across the board if anything, it wasn't desperation or stupidity. It was the opposite. It was an overabundance of idealism. It was Mm. this, you know, idealism to a fault. Um, I talked to Stephen Hassan, who's a a well-known cult scholar in he's an ex Mooney. So he was a member of the unification church and he used to recruit people to the unification church. So he knows a little something about the type of person that they would go for. And it was never someone who had you know psychological problems or was liable to break down quickly because, you know, being in a cult is, is hard work. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, you want someone who's going to have their chin up and their eyes bright and who's going to stick it out even when things get really hard. And, um, and when, you know, the, the things they were promised out of the gate maybe don't come true um, you're gonna want people who are very service-minded who, who want to do something great for humanity uh, cynics and people who are extremely selfish don't don't tend to join cults because they're they, they don't care about a cult leaders promise that they have the solutions to humanity's most urgent problems um, so yeah no we we rationalize to ourselves that the people who wind up in in groups like that are really simpletons but they're not at all this is not to say that absolutely anyone is susceptible to joining a group like heaven's gate i i do not think this is the case um it is it is a good thing to uh be vigilant and to be skeptical and to be constantly questioning but our our prevailing wisdom that the people who wind up in cultish groups are are stupid um it's (laughs) it's really false
0: yeah but there's a nice parallel there with the thing We've noticed amongst our gurus, which is that the people who are attracted to them are, are often curious people and thoughtful, and wanting to. And the the appealing part is the digging deep into interesting topics and going behind the sort of headlines and so on. So, and it's um, oh, definitely. Yeah. I
2: call them uh, I call them spiritual nerds, or maybe uh, <laughs> maybe you all, for the gurus you talk about, would have a different a different label. But they're they're people who are not afraid to explore in the less traveled corners of, of humanity who are interested in, in ideas that might not be mainstream. And that's not inherently bad. Um, I talked toward the end of the book about how when some of history's finest minds like Carl Sagan were given personality tests, they scored really high in both conscientiousness and open-mindedness. So decades ago, when it was like really kooky to believe in extraterrestrial life, Carl Sagan was willing to entertain that idea, but he wasn't so open to every woo-woo concept that crossed his desk that he was willing to believe UFOs had already landed on the earth and were sending us signals Via crop circles or whatever, like it's it's a good idea to have a balance of both open mindedness and skepticism.
1: So yeah, Amanda, you we in the people that we look at because we don't focus as much on the kind of conspiratoriality sphere or health and wellness area, we've noticed a thing that we term science hipsterism that <laughs> they they that it has all the normal features of hipster but it's focused on scientific theories or you know and so like at the minute a perfect example would be the lab leak is super appealing for that reason especially if you can claim that you were there you know ahead of the curve but or, oh, iver-
2: no. <laughs>
1: or uh, ivermectin ivermectin also at the minute being one but it's a tendency we've noted yeah related to science and it can even be that like you may reach a conclusion which is pretty mainstream like that you uh, you believe global warming is happening but it's not for the various lines of evidence that normal people believe in it's because of these giant craters in the siberian tundra the yamal craters that's that's the key piece of evidence that people don't know about and it's
2: oh that is so funny science hipsters that's hilarious it's like your snobbery doesn't surround indie music it surrounds like indie scientific theories
1: yeah Yeah, and it's it's definitely like that you'd never have heard of this theorist but he's great Uh, um (laughs) yeah that i did want to ask as well amanda before i forget that one one faculty that we see recurrent as well as the in group jargon or like the invention of new terminology and and abbreviations some of our gurus like really love that but another thing that they demonstrate is this really quite impressive ability to use metaphorical language and to layer mm-hmm. metaphors on top of metaphors and, and <laughs> also to conjure them up in a, a quite an impressive way and it's it leads i mean on one side it does seem to create a sort of pseudo profundity and but on an, another level um a, 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 actually Matthew Ramsky pointed out you know that a lot of the ancient spiritual traditions and whatnot have this very beautiful metaphorical language mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. is regarded as profound so I I wonder from a linguistic perspective does a faculty with metaphor is that something you commonly see yeah. Uh,
2: Yeah, well, I think it takes, I mean, I think there is something sort of inherently profound about a good metaphor, but artistically, not really like, logically uh as a writer i certainly can appreciate uh, a profound or pseudo profound metaphor my writing is not the most metaphorical <laughs> thing in the world i do have a couple zingers i do have a couple zingy metaphors in the book um just you know as as a creative writer you gotta sneak them in there um but yeah what's your think- what's
1: your best one just before i let you give that oh
2: oh uh Actually, let me just like open up to the end of um of like part one of my book, because I, I am thinking of one in particular that I, maybe it'll sound silly like when I I've read it got, I, out of context,
1: but I think it's okay. I have part of the reason I admire the guru ability with metaphors is whenever I try to make one I invariably lose the thread of like two or three sentences. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I
2: really yeah, no, I, I think metaphors should be appreciated for their artistic beauty but maybe not you know we don't need to put too much stake in them um because it's it is a poetic device right Mm. like it's it's not a logic device yeah um i mean i think that metaphors can sometimes help us reorient our perspectives in really interesting ways but yeah no i think you're right when Um, I talk more about euphemisms in the book, although I I do talk about metaphors in the context of loaded language. For example, early in the book, I give an example surrounding the the term old soul, which to an everyday English speaker is kind of a compliment, like meaning someone who's wise beyond their years. But in this one kundalini yoga cultish group, it was redefined as something really awful sort of a threat like an old soul was someone who'd reincarnated life after life after life and could never get it right and so you what you can do with metaphors is basically redefine them um and emotionally charge them as a way to steer people's behavior um but they can also be really beautiful Uh um, so the the last part of the last you know paragraph of part one um this heavens gate survivor named frank lifford who went on to become a life coach so like kind of a guru but in a in a different way he talked to me and he said our inner guidance is the best possible navigation any of us has he said this doesn't mean we can't oh no then i said this doesn't mean we can't look outward or upward for help through the chaos but to me frank continued a good coach is one who does not guide but shines light on a person's deepest desires and blocks and then I say not a guide not a prophet not a guru telling you just what to say but a candle in the dimly lit library of existence the only dictionary you need is already open
1: (laughs) that (laughs) was very good yeah that was worth it
0: (laughs) but 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 I have to say it's not as good as Jordan Peterson's giant crystalline structure bursting out of the ground I forget what happened after that (laughs) 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 oh
2: Jordan Peterson (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, we, so much. <laughs> we listen to a lot of the content. They're like the kind of format of our show is, you know, playing clips and analyzing the techniques in them. the um, multi-layered metaphors and their very very loose connection to the question that was yeah. asked. Is it, it, he's he's a master of that genre. There is an element, I guess, probably with you as well, Amanda, and definitely with me and Matt, that you you sort of come to respect the craftsmanship of (laughs) the 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 cult figures or the gurus that you're looking at and it it's perhaps worrying but i i get a kind of enjoyment in some sense from you know a very very well done manipulative technique (laughs)
2: Yeah, no, totally. Actually, um, I was watching a YouTube video a few months ago, um, breaking down how expertly Kellyanne Conway dodges direct questions. And it's of course infuriating, like spiritually to watch her do that, but you've got to admire it. Like she is so good at dodging direct questions. And, uh, so yeah, no, you can like admire the, the craftspersonship to, gender neutralize that word um but you can't uh but but you shouldn't yeah it's not something to be admired ethically
0: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, actually you know we're not primarily focused on the political um, angle of things, but uh, j- just recently, you know, some of these things, I think you called this kind of thing thought-terminating cliches, and you see it a lot in political discourse. And um, I, I was listening to a, a debate um, yesterday where some a conservative was demanding that um, the interlocutor choose between equality of opportunity or equality of outcome choose. <laughs> it just, oh,
2: we love a false dilemma. We love a false dilemma.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah,
2: so thought terminating cliches um, are, uh, I wish I had coined this term. Um, <laughs> this is a, a term that was coined by this psychologist in the early 60s named Robert J. Lifton, um, and it's something I talk about a lot in the book, and it's the sort of thing where once you know what it is, you won't be able to unhear it, but there are these uh, stock expressions that are easily memorized, easily repeated, and they're aimed at shutting down like independent thinking or analysis or questioning, um, and they alleviate cognitive dissonance. And so they're they're really effective, and they're by no means exclusive to cultish groups. They they you know you, they'll show up in right political debate shows or even just their everyday lives like. Uh, everything happens for a reason is a perfect example of a thought-terminating cliche you're, you'll hear all the time, or or it is what it is, or boys will be boys, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, cultish leaders really take advantage of of thought-terminating cliches because whenever someone notices a wrinkle in their belief system, or their ideology, or their whatever they're preaching, um, you can just, you know, without a thought, terminating cliche to, to shut that person up for a while.
0: Yeah. And it's not entirely unrelated to those metaphorical techniques. Um, you were just talking about, um, uh, yeah. w- one of the gurus, we look at, um, uh, uh Brett Weinstein, he's, um, very much on the, um, anti-vaxxer train at the moment. but, um, he, he collectively uses some caveats, of course, deny being an anti-vaxxer, but he will compare vaccines to playing Russian roulette with a loaded gun <laughs> <laughs> like very, just very, very evocative wow. like, but he's not—he's not saying they're dangerous. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. The, uh, the, a lot of his followers said no. He's just, you know, just talking about the relative, like you know, the probabilities and whatnot involved. And like, I, I wonder if there's any other motivation in choosing a loaded gun as a, as a, the metaphor. But uh, Amanda, related to that, uh, it, that's maybe an example of a technique that Brett. And many of the gurus also use, which is this, what we've called the use of strategic disclaimers that will often, I I wonder if this is less common amongst actual gurus and cult leaders, because in the content we look at, people want, to appear as public intellectuals and and science-minded right. people, so they're very careful to add in maybe before they start that you know, look, I don't have all the answers. I'm just discussing possibilities here. Uh-huh. I, I, oh, I'm... that's
2: like a, like Sam Harris will do that.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, like the Sam Harris shuffle. I've heard two-step shuffle. Some people have described, but <laughs> yeah. I. It, I wonder, is that something unique to the people that we we're looking at, that they, you know, the kind of people that they want the appeal to, that they will invoke these, like they might they might talk for one hour about the dangers of vaccines and how, you know, this current vaccine is destroying the natural immunity of children. And then in the last five minutes, they'll say, no, these were controversial discussions. The answers aren't clear. We're not mm-hmm. claiming to know. But, and if you criticize them, right, saying, this was an anti-vaccine podcast demonizing the safety of vaccines. People say, no, no, no. Did you not hear Right that they said they're just mm. discussing possibilities? I've described it as almost like a magic spell. If you just say, I'm not right. doing X, that the, it, it works surprisingly well, that that there'll be, there'll be a large amount of people that say you, you couldn't have done that because you said you're not.
2: That actually, that sounds like a thought-terminating cliche. There's definitely some overlap there for someone just to say, "Well, I don't have all the answers." Boom! Like that, then the discussion cannot continue. And that's a, mm-hmm. that's actually a great example of a thought-terminating cliche. I think that one in particular is probably used more by the pseudo-intellectuals. Like, I don't know for sure, but I can definitely imagine Keith Raniere, the Nexium guy, saying something like that because Nexium wasn't. Um, like a religious cult. It was more of like the self-actualization, like pseudo-intellectual type of group. So I can totally like hear him saying something like that. But generally, like with the gurus that, that I was looking at, they very much do claim to have all the answers <laughs> in one way or um, So yeah, they're not going to disclaim as much, but actually something they will do is they'll present, you know, all of, well, they'll use all of these Linguistic techniques and methods of manipulation and persuasion or whatever coercion conditioning and then sometimes maybe they'll say like but you make up your own mind that sort of thing but it's like okay well I'll make up the mind that you've conditioned uh, now so it's like I'm just you know you've created this echo chamber and like you've convinced me that I'm thinking for myself but really I'm just a mirror for you. Um, but yeah, no, that uh, that strategic disclaimer thing sounds um, like slightly slightly removed from the the sorts of leaders that that I was looking at. But um, wow, that's super infuriating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: so. So Amanda, you've done an amazing job of delineating all of these ways in which language can be weaponized. So I guess one of the logical things to kind of um, finish up with is to get your advice for people to be able to detect and um, avoid this kind of thing. I, it's probably a very difficult question, but do you have any?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, cultishness, obviously, we've said this again and again, like it's not a binary. There's not like good cults and evil cults. Um, There's there's good and bad in so many different groups. And. I think it's important to check in with yourself and to think, you know, is, is the language that I'm hearing and that I'm using, is it working to halt my independent thinking and questioning while triggering a strong emotional response? Does it make me divide, you know, everyone who's on the inside from everyone who's on the outside, just because I'm able to use this language and I know what it means and other people don't. Does it, create a sense of elitism and superiority in you do the slogans and the buzzwords like do they really mean anything can you explain what they mean in plain english um and if you know you answer all of those questions um as like oh wait actually yes yes it does oh no it doesn't um you can just like check off the boxes and realize huh maybe Maybe the group I'm in is a little too culty for comfort. At the end of the day, and Stephen Hassan told me this in one of my very early interviews for Cultish, anything legitimate will stand up to scrutiny. And if mm. you can't express doubt in any way, if you can't ask questions, if you can't dabble casually in the group that you're affiliated with, and if you're you're using too much of the specialized language and if the thought-terminating cliches and loaded language are working too well on you to sort of morally divorce yourself from the rest of the world world then uh yeah those are some signs that it might be time to tap out
0: (laughs) yeah i really like that advice i think uh, a few of the things you mentioned kind of point to that interface between our intellectual selves and the emotional selves and when those purportedly intellectual arguments are 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 resonating with us at that gut kind of level, then that's probably a a good point to step back a little bit and uh, aim for a little bit of dispassion and analysis and see whether it still holds up.
2: Definitely. And I, by no means, you know, want to encourage people to disengage from any alternative group that they might be affiliated with. You know, I think we as human beings were communal by nature in a way we're kind of like irrational and spiritual by nature. And I think it's healthy to engage in community rituals with other people doing the same, um, to engage in a slogan or a mantra or a buzzword here and there. Um, but just to have that, you know vigilant twinkle in your eye or that tingle in the back of your brain that tells you that there's some amount of make-believe here and that there needs to be a special time and place to engage in in those rituals um and a time and place to re reconnect with with reality um i think that that's really important and a lot of the ex-cult members that i talked to for the book um cult survivors they they told me that you know their solution really after having oh because if you've been a member of one cultish group, odds are you're going to join another and that's a whole other conversation. Um, It's not unlike abusive relationships, really. I talk Mm -hmm. about that in the book too, but... um, Same with
0: conspiracy theories, of course.
2: Of course, yeah. But something that they said is like, maybe the solution is to be a member of a whole bunch of cultish groups. So you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. You're sort of like uh, (laughs) diversifying your spiritual and social portfolio, if you will.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I like it. it. The point about ritual psychology, uh, you know, kind of resonating with people and not necessarily being a bad thing is music to because my, my research work focuses on the kind of cognitive impacts of rituals. And like you say, you find them everywhere in, in all kinds of organizations and sports teams and so on. And yeah. they, they, they can have positive and negative effects like you know born to a group, goo. It can be good, it just depends on the nature of the group. But I kind of related question to that that I wanted to ask Amanda before I forget. And we I know you've been very generous with your time. So try not to keep you much longer. But <laughs> the the guys that you spoke to, they've noticed and their whole show right is kind of named around this somewhat intriguing overlap between the health and wellness spheres and the kind of MAGA, QAnon, or a kind of reactionary right-wing conspiratorial politics, which has sort of crept in. Um, we've discussed how that might link back to earlier movements and not be entirely novel, but I'm just wondering from your perspective, do you see in that overlap or any of the other political overlaps in the communities that you look at anything novel that is specific to the day or is it more related to you know technological change and web 2.0
2: oh that's a good question because a lot of it is really just like recycled doomsday kind of evangelical derived ideology and rhetoric like even the new age stuff They'll talk about being born in trauma, but that's very similar to being born in sin. And they'll talk about a great awakening, but that's very similar to a rapture or a second coming. Um, So, yeah, a lot lot of it is sort of recycled doomsday evangelical derived stuff. Um, Is there anything brand spanking new? Um, That's that's a good question. I mean, I think some of the like feminist conspiritualist circles feel new ish. I mean, there've always been, you know, sacred spaces for women and stuff. But I think what's interesting is, like, some of the, like, divine goddess, woo-woo groups that have overlapped with pastel QAnon and such and conspiratorial ideology um, and how that has overlapped with feminist ideology and feminist rhetoric or certain, like, interpretations of feminist rhetoric. Just the ways that, like, social justice and conspiracy theories and new age metaphysics have all conglomerated is um that feels kind of of the moment to me <laughs> I,
0: look i think um in terms of the political dimension i'd personally say that those linguistic tricks are across the political divide you could see them operating in the sort of woke communities and you can see them happening at the maga end as well
2: Oh, completely. Oh, I actually have a piece coming out soon about the like new age dialect that has taken over our culture. How you'll hear talk of frequencies, vibrations, paradigm shifts, actualization, and holistic, et cetera, pervading not just your woo woo wellness influencers and your soul cycle studios, but your startups. Your, your your hipster mega churches um your uh people people will just talk about people just talk about their general life in terms of like oh like my vibration has really upgraded since last year blah 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 like it really says something about how woo- woo our culture at large has become in the wake of all this tumult um and that's culty in a a way that I think can be a little bit dangerous because two people could be using the exact same set of vocabulary and, and be talking about like completely different things um, in a way that I think can be um, a little scary. But, but yeah, certainly like the internet and Instagram and hashtags and the way that language evolves so quickly now is also kind of new, but really just, a pro- I sometimes joke that like the algorithm, the algorithm is the ultimate cult leader um, because like internet algorithms are, are designed to keep us using certain technology and social media platforms for longer. And so they'll send us down rabbit holes, um, you know, feeding us like more and more extreme versions of what we already want to believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and language can be kind of a gateway.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's such a complex and fast changing environment at the moment. I mean, you could pick out so many things, but just one example is the way that the, that corporate buzzwordy language has embraced a lot of the woke self-actualizing language as well.
2: As a way to sort of mask that Nothing about the corporation might be changing in terms yeah. of inclusion or, or whatever, um, or ethics or any of that, but now they're using the word holistic, and now they're using the word organic, and now they're using the term actualization, and so it's kind of like a red herring.
1: Yeah, the Amazon, like, kind of death box <laughs> It's probably yeah. the, the most obvious recent example of that, but uh, yeah, I don't think it was labeled the death box, but that's what it looked like. Um, so. <laughs> Amanda, you like I said, you've been extremely generous with your time. And I think Matt and me could continue just to use up your phone battery and and, <laughs> and and steal your knowledge. Um, but we should probably let you go. So be before that though, is there anything in the book or in your work that you think is important that we haven't touched on or, or and If not, or even if so, I believe that you have a new TV series maybe coming out as well as the podcast. Is that correct?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, you know, as these Hollywood things go, my first book is in development um, at FX. So um, my first book was about language and gender, and I'm writing a show inspired by my first book about a young language genius using her... Uh, hyper polyglot superpowers and her magical abilities to code switch and her freakish knowledge of etymologies and slang and that sort of thing to um to dethrone powerful people and access spaces and so yeah that's a show that I'm that I'm currently developing as uh, to use a Hollywood buzzword <laughs> um which basically just means like I'm writing it and rewriting it and trying to figure out if it's actually going to ever be on tv um, but I, yeah, I, that's a very exciting thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that because uh, you know, they, way way back at the start of this, you were talking about the you know in group terminology serving as this marker for the group that you belong to, and I, I couldn't help but thinking that you know in a in a very obvious way accents function in that way you know just in normal everyday life. And I once met someone in London at a party who. Who, when I met them, spoke in a English accent, and then midway through the conversation, switched to a Belfast accent. And it turned out they were originally from Belfast, but had developed this ability to turn off their accent. And it struck me as like inherently wrong, and you know, <laughs> deeply kind. And I became immediately suspicious of that person because they <laughs> they had that facility. So your character that you described. Sounds like you know very interesting, but also a monster.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, totally. She's like diabolical in this very sort of harmless way. You know, like again, like we totally take language for granted. It's like sticks and stones. How much harm can language do? But yeah, it's like so viscerally disturbing when someone, uh, you know, someone's whole like your whole perception of somebody changes when they. Yeah. Can, flip a switch like that so um yes exactly that's uh, a type of uh, Machiavellian superpower that I want her to have it's really (laughs) underrated
0: Uh, your book seems fascinating really enjoyed listening to you on, on other podcasts and um yeah thanks so much for coming on it's uh yeah really just yeah
1: fantastic stuff
2: thank you so much for having me really uh really enjoyed this
1: yeah you know uh okay we're terrible at serving so say oh what's the word signing off signing off that's it, Matt, but, but we, we uh, just sort of tail off uh, and it
0: kind of works fine
1: yeah, yeah. so so we'll edit it together and it will sound nice but, um so f- thanks for listening everybody and uh bye-bye you Bye. <laughs>